Hey everybody, it's Ryan here. So the podcast you're about to listen to is part of a series about an almost president of the past. But as I'm sure you're aware, 2024 is an election year. And with that comes a whole slew of present day almost presidents. And so every Thursday, Kevin and I will be putting out episodes centered around the 2024 presidential election. We'll be talking about all the important headlines and the almost presidents making them. And we would love to have you join us as we discuss it all. Good, the bad, the ugly, the even uglier, and the just downright ridiculous. So that's every Thursday morning, wherever you get podcasts. Now, enjoy this episode, and thank you for listening to the Almost Presidents Podcast. Good morning, class. For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important, the President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 8 of the Almost Presidents Podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Kevin. And this is our monthly podcast where we talk American presidential politics through the lens of the loser. So, Kevin, how are things going in the new year? Pretty good. So, uh, just got back from picking up some COVID tests from the local local shop there. So, I, I feel like uh, I might be making uh, this a yearly tradition now. Well, I didn't do it last year, but you know a semi-regular tradition of just getting COVID right around Christmas, New Year's time. So I, I don't know if I have it. I have like a slight sore throat. My girlfriend is is down. I suspect she does have it. We know that someone we were in contact with had COVID. So yeah, might might have it, but hey, what are you going to do? Yeah, I was at that party too. So I might I might be starting out my New Year with it as well. But hey, I hope she feels better. I hope you don't. I hope neither one of you have it. Um, are we still yeah, be great. talking about different flavors of COVID? Is there like a new? Is there? An, are we on epsilon at this point, or is there? Are we just done with flavors? It's just COVID. I used to know my Greek alphabet a lot better, but I don't anymore. I know it was Omicron was the one two years ago. This one, I know it is. It is a new strain. I read about it online ahead of time, and I told myself. I should probably get a booster for this one. And then I proceeded to not do that because I don't know, I'm just dumb and I didn't have the time. But uh, so it is a new strain of it. And they okay. recommended getting a booster because of the the different strain, which, you know, of course, I'm sure most people didn't do. Then I just forgot personally. I mean, let this be a reminder, folks, your friendly uh, co-hosts included. Go and get your COVID boosters. And if you haven't gotten vaccinated against COVID, go and do that because uh, who knows? I mean, if weren't for this already being the name of a band that, that this will be a throwback for you, Kevin, um, Apocalyptica, when, once COVID Apocalyptica gets here, I mean, if you are not vaxxed up, you're done. Yeah, especially if they're backed up by the lead singer of Three Days Grace, which is the only song I know by that band. Yeah, if Adam Gontier is involved in this, it's it's double over. Yeah, for sure. Which I gotta say, something I've enjoyed in the uh, in the new year is getting into bands that have 
frontmen from bands that I loved. Like I found out that Chester Bennington, did you know this, did this early project called Gray Haze where he was the frontman? And then I, I found no out that Adam, about this. Adam Gontier from Three Days Grace joined this super group called uh, St. Estonia or something like that. So these okay. guys, like they're, 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 they're like they're still new shit to listen to. Like obviously Chester's not with us anymore, but it's pretty neat. Yeah, that is cool. I'm going to be honest. I totally forgot that Adam Gontier existed and totally forgot his name. So, but hey, it's good to hear that he's still out there putting stuff out. Yeah. And look, if you have COVID, if I have COVID, we can still drive around, stay in the car and uh, bump some. <laughs> so gray haze. Um, is it gray haze or gray days? Hold on. Because I'm going to sound really stupid if I don't know. We're, we're keeping this in. Gray days. Okay. I've said gray haze for the <laughs> It's gray days. But we can still drive around, um, bumping that, staying in the car, keeping the mask on when we're out. And uh, yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So as you know, you can find us on social media. On Facebook, you can search the Almost Presidents podcast. On Instagram, you can search the Almost Presidents podcast as well. And on Twitter, we're at Almost Potus Pod because I refuse to say X. I will continue to say Twitter, but you know that's just me. And of course, you can also email us with any questions or comments, or if you want to tell us how much you hate the episode. Our email is the Almost Presidents podcast at gmail.com. We welcome all hate mail or love mail or neutral mail. Um, so yeah, then we can get into the uh, the episode for today. So today we'll be diving into part eight of a multi-part series on Samuel Tilden and the disastrous election of 1876. If you haven't checked out the other episodes in the series and you want to go back and start at the beginning of the story, feel free to put this episode on pause and go check those out. We'll be right here when you get back. As for the rest of you listeners out there, let's go ahead and get started. So in May of 1868, the Republican convention met in Crosby's Opera House in Chicago, Illinois. Their party leaders made official what honestly a lot of people had accurately predicted was going to happen by unanimously nominating Civil War hero Ulysses S. Grant to be the Republican nominee for president in the 1868 presidential election. Grant, a career soldier who had shown little interest in politics before his nomination, kicked off his campaign by writing in his letter of acceptance of the nomination a short phrase that would go on to be his campaign slogan. It went like this, quote, let us have peace. What this meant as far as how he intended to govern a still ideologically divided country that had just gone through a prolonged civil war, followed by the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, Reconstruction of the South of both the presidential and the congressional variety, the first impeachment of a sitting president, and the rise of white supremacist groups in the South intent on disenfranchising, terrorizing, and murdering freedmen. Who was to say? Grant would defeat his Democratic opponent, former Democratic governor of New York, Horatio Seymour, and become the youngest president to date, assuming the position at the age of 46. His election served as yet another mile marker in decades of Republican monopoly over the executive branch. When reading what historians have to say about Grant's two terms as president, there isn't much that's flattering in the initial analysis. Corruption comes up again and again as a consistent theme throughout Grant's two terms in the White House. The size, scope, and particulars of just who was involved in the various corruption scandals even led to the term Grantism becoming synonymous with government corruption. 
And it's just this corruption that created a political climate within which a guy like Samuel Tilden, who built a career off of fighting corruption, would come to be seen as just what the doctor ordered to combat years of Republican crookedness. As someone who admires Grant in many ways, the frustrating part about the patently corrupt years of Grant's presidency is that Grant remained honest throughout them. It wasn't he who was corrupt, it was the people around him, many of whom were friends from the war who took advantage of lucrative job postings and their proximity to power to look after their own selfish interests. On some occasions, as we'll see in this episode, the very fact that some of the buddies involved in these scandals were Grant's war buddies led to him defending, or at least not outright condemning, their actions. So despite the fact that he entered and exited the White House, an honest man, with his reputation untarnished by corruption, the fact that it happened at such a rate under his presidential administration, and that he failed to stop or at least condemn certain instances of it because those involved were friends, I mean, come on. At the end of the day, what does that say about the guy? The scandals that took place under Grant's leadership led to a presidential legacy that is still much alive today. Grant, one of the most revered military men in American history, was a president who failed to keep his house in order. So let's get started, taking things one scandal at a time. The first major scandal to rock the Grant administration involved two cutthroat Wall Street moguls and directors of the Erie Railroad, Jay Gould and James Fisk Jr., who in April 1869 conspired to corner the gold market and walk away tremendously wealthy for it. In the wake of the Civil War, America had gone off the gold standard, having issued $450 million in what were at the time called greenbacks throughout the war in order to fund massive wartime spending. These greenbacks were paper notes used to pay for goods and services that were backed by the federal government, but were not ultimately redeemable in gold. Throughout the course of the war, based on whether the Union appeared to be winning or losing, the value of these greenbacks as compared to gold fluctuated. The value of greenbacks increased after the Union won the war, but still were the cause of inflation which led them to contribute to the destabilization of the American economy. Once the war was over and the country had to reckon with the debt it had incurred during the war years, greenbacks were mandated as the only permissible way to pay off the national debt. Additionally, the circulation of greenbacks also served to take gold out of circulation, which led to a marked increase in the value of gold. Enter onto the scene Gould and Fisk. Given the current economic situation, the two men planned to take advantage of the increased value of gold by buying up as much of it as they could and selling it back at exorbitantly high prices. But in order to do this, they had to take action against the Grant administration, who had been buying back greenbacks from the public using gold to do so. From an economic standpoint, the government's policy of recirculating gold to the public would create an obstacle for Gould and Fisk when it came to buying up all the gold they could and cornering the gold market. So in order to achieve their goal, they allied themselves with the president's brother-in-law, Abel Corbin. Corbin was able to use his influence to obtain insider information using his proximity to power and strategic political appointments. This helped Gould and Fisk know what the federal government was up to as far as the circulation of gold was concerned. Additionally, they concocted a BS story about how high gold prices would actually be in the national interest, and somehow they managed to successfully pitch and sell it to Grant, who didn't possess nearly the level of financial astuteness as they did. And to be fair, most of us probably don't. We, we certainly don't. We had to do a lot of research on this whole scandal in order to actually understand it. 
At first, Grant bought into their story and planned to halt the sale of gold coming from the Treasury. But eventually, Grant came around to what was happening and issued the sale of $4 million in gold to break Gould and Fisk's growing stranglehold on the gold market. But Grant's response did a lot more than combat Gould and Fisk's machinations. A History.com article on what would go down in history as Black Friday explains, quote, Along with finally loosening Gould and Fisk's grasp on the gold market, the news sent Wall Street into a tailspin. Possibly no avalanche ever swept with more terrible violence, the New York Herald later wrote. Within minutes, the inflated gold prices plummeted from $160 to $133. The stock market joined in on the plunge, dropping a full 20 percentage points and bankrupting or inflicting severe damage on some of Wall Street's most venerable firms. Thousands of speculators were left financially ruined, and at least one committed suicide. Foreign trade ground to a halt. Farmers may have felt the squeeze most of all, with many seeing the value of their wheat and corn harvests dip by 50%. The U.S. economy would feel the brunt of the damage for years to come, and although Grant didn't play an active role in the corrupt practices that resulted in this financial nightmare, reputation began to travel that he was a president who lacked the ability to effectively oversee his own administration. And in typical Grant fashion, Abel Corbin, the brother-in-law who had used his influence to infiltrate the government to aid the perpetrators of what would go on to be referred to as the gold ring, would be essentially forgiven by Grant. According to Ron Chernow, Grant never broke off relations with Corbin and would prove surprisingly forgiving toward him, exchanging pleasant letters with him before too long. In other words, Corbin could still expect to receive a family Christmas card every year as well as a card for his birthday, despite everything that had happened. And while the ability to forgive is an admirable trait, in political terms, Grant's blind spot when it came to family, friends, and allies would only go on to open him up to be the unwitting victim of future political scandals. Another scandal that took place early on in Grant's administration would go down in history as the New York Custom House Ring. At the time this scandal took place, the New York Custom House was one of the most important financial institutions in the country. Just to put it into perspective, somewhere in the ballpark of 70 to 80% of imports coming into the country came through the port of New York. This accounted for one third of the country's revenue. This made whoever had control of the New York Custom House not only immensely wealthy and powerful, but also the holder of a sizable amount of political power. After all, it was this powerful individual who held sway over its 1,500 patronage jobs. These factors would make this person a force to be reckoned with in New York machine politics, because with all that money and power came influence, even if it came in the form of redirecting some of the cash flow that traveled through the customs house into the hands of the right people, or for one's own personal enrichment. According to Grant biographer Ron Chernow, the president was able to boast that he was the first president to push for the creation of some kind of professional civil service. If successful, this could put an end to the spoils system and create more of an honest meritocracy surrounding government posts that wasn't nearly as partisan as what was taking place at the time. Unfortunately, however, Grant just couldn't follow up his ideas with concrete action and became partly complicit in participating in the very spoil system that he had set about to reform. Machine politics and the power it vested in the representatives these party bosses elected to govern made it a daunting challenge for Grant to effect change when governing officials answered to these party bosses as well as their business interests. As Chernow writes, quote, Grant presided over government in the heyday of senatorial power. Senators were still elected by state legislatures 
controlled by party machines and business interests. Safely entrenched in their posts, senators ruled Washington like feudal barons, jealously guarding their turf from presidential interference. Not having to face voters for re-election, they stood as formidable barriers to any progressive legislation. And then you can just add on to that the fact that the Republican Party had established dominance in the wake of the Civil War, and it was now no longer this brand new party that was just united really around the issue of slavery. Like we saw in the earlier episodes of this season of the podcast, the Republican Party was becoming more ideologically nuanced and transitioning from largely focusing on incorporating freedmen into the union to the business of holding on to power, and sometimes that meant through corrupt means. And all of this is how we arrive at the New York Custom House ring. As much of the scandal revolves around Roscoe Conkling, a former United States representative from New York, then immensely powerful New York senator at the time the events took place, let's take a moment quickly to talk about him. So Roscoe Conkling was a leader of the faction within the Republican Party known as the Stalwarts. Ideologically, the Stalwarts remained true to the defense of black civil rights, the continued existence of Southern Republicanism through the black vote and governments set up by Northern carpetbaggers in order to ensure compliance from Southerners who sought to reverse the outcome of the war. And as it pertains to us, the stalwarts supported Grant's decisions as president. This led to Grant allying with them, and more specifically, closely allying himself with Roscoe Conkling. This close relationship literally paid dividends for Conkling, who Grant made in charge of the New York Custom House. This made the already powerful Conkling even more powerful. Grant also appointed Thomas Murphy to serve as customs collector. Murphy was a friend with perhaps a little bit of a shady past, or shady enough at least to result in another New York senator, Reuben Fenton, who carried with him some political clout in his own right, to oppose Murphy's nomination to the post. This caused a great deal of Republican infighting as Conkling jumped in the ring to defend Murphy, perhaps not so much because of personal feelings towards the man, but in order to put him in closer proximity to power by defending a man who was appointed by the President of the United States. The resulting power struggle got ugly. Ugly enough for the New York Times to report, quote, On both sides, the contest at Washington has been conducted without the slightest possible reference to the wishes and welfare of this city, or even the welfare of the Republican Party. The whole affair is narrowed down to a struggle for advantage between two New York senators. The political muckraking created a huge embarrassment for the Republicans, and for Grant. The Senate went into session over Murphy's post, Senator Fenton accusing Murphy of corrupt business practices in the past, Fenton getting accused of straight up stealing $12,000, and the shame that came with the truth of this accusation opened the way for Murphy to hold on to his job. Although he wouldn't hold on to it for long, as corruption charges followed him too and led to him resigning from his post. Two congressional investigations would go on to reveal that Thomas Murphy, along with another grant appointee, were permitting private merchants to store their goods in private warehouses for outrageous fees. The corruption extended all the way up to Grant's secretaries, Horace Porter and Orville Babcock. In typical Grant fashion, he would go on to defend Murphy, which again demonstrated that while not directly implicated in the scandal and still a quote-unquote honest man, he was quick to defend those involved in scandal, so long as they were his friends. The New York Custom House fiasco demonstrated not only the dire need for civil service reform, but Grant's inability to get it done, due in no small part to political necessity 
and the power and influence of party bosses. But by far the biggest scandal associated with the Grant administration is what became known as the Whiskey Ring. For Grant, the problem began when he appointed his friend John McDonald, which of course, as we know now, this never ends well for Grant when he appoints his friends. But don't worry, it's going to get worse. Um, as supervisor of the U.S. Treasury Department's internal revenue for Arkansas and Missouri. During this time, the Treasury Department was so corrupt that Congress had created the exact post McDonald filled in an effort to investigate and root out corruption and fraud associated with the whiskey trade. You see, for years now, what had become known as the Whiskey Ring had been falsifying their records as to how much whiskey they had produced, only to have these fraudulent records knowingly signed off on by agents of the U.S. Treasury. This led to the personal enrichment of those whiskey distillers intent on avoiding paying their taxes and government agents cut in on the deal. The side effect, however, was the whiskey ring defrauding the federal treasury of millions of dollars over the course of its operation. But that wasn't the only thing McDonald had been sent to St. Louis to tackle. He was also sent there to drum up support for Grant among Missouri Republicans in the buildup to Grant's re-election campaign. These Republicans had grown jaded with General Grant in the White House, and yet it was these exact Republicans that Grant needed support from to secure his second term. Missouri had the double duty of being home to a group of Republicans Grant had to win over, but was also the focus of the Whiskey Ring, who, even more damagingly, were using some of the funds for their illegal activities to support Republican politicians. One can only imagine how bad it would be if dirty money traced back to the Whiskey Ring made its way into Grant's re-election campaign. And to give you a breakdown of how the whiskey ring's money was doled out on the dollar, for the 70% tax dodged per gallon of whiskey, half went to the distiller, and the other half went to the whiskey ring. Unfortunately, John McDonald was the wrong guy when it came to keeping his nose out of trouble, ignoring the temptation to take his share of profits, and ultimately doing what he was sent to St. Louis to do in the first place. Before long, he became part of the whiskey ring, and before it was over, he would bring in close members of Grant's presidential administration. To address Grant's concern about lack of Republican support coming out of Missouri, McDonald used whiskey money to bribe people, distribute patronage jobs, and fund the campaigns of Republicans running in other states. Those in Washington in the know were bribed to alert the ring to any investigators headed their way from the Capitol. Now, if any of our listeners happen to have the ear of Martin Scorsese or any of his people, the exploits of the Whiskey Ring might make a great Scorsese film one day. I actually think we said this on the last episode, too. So I guess lots of Scorsese content in this series here. So you're welcome, Martin. Um, and like any Scorsese film, at some point, some iteration of the feds have to get more heavily involved and turn up the heat as the film unfolds. This ends, as it always does, with some version of Ray Liotta driving around frantically looking in the rearview mirror at a helicopter that may or may not be following him until eventually he gets busted. So, in an age before helicopters, and before Ray Liotta as well, what did getting busted actually look like for the whiskey ring? Well, it began in June 1874 with the newly appointed Treasury Secretary Benjamin Bristow. In a sense, almost similar to Tilden's crusade against Tammany Hall, at least as far as the broad strokes go, Bristow would make taking down the whiskey ring his personal mission, despite the fact that the tainted fruits of his labors benefited in no small way his own party. And you can almost place these words in Tilden's mouth only in regards to the Democratic Party, when Bristow said that his intent was to purge the Republican Party of all the rogues that have fastened themselves upon us and to satisfy the people that we mean to have honest government. 
Unfortunately for Bristow, his efforts to bring down the Whiskey Ring would not be rewarded in the same way Tilden's efforts bringing down Tammany Hall were. Both men would be seen as prospective candidates in the presidential election of 1876, but Bristow's brutal efficiency when prosecuting those involved in the Whiskey Ring, many of whom were ranking members of President Grant's administration, would play a big factor in his failure to win the Republican nomination in 1876, despite being a major reform-minded member of his party. The investigation, which many within his party viewed as his vehicle to make a presidential run, as well as the deep corruption it nakedly exposed about the Republican Party, led to a job well done on Bristow's part, being thankless in terms of its significance, as well as the political bona fides he may have deserved for accomplishing it. But let's dig into that investigation now. In October of 1874, Benjamin Bristow sent revenue inspectors to St. Louis. These inspectors were tipped off via a telegram reading, put your house in order, your friends will visit you. This enabled those involved in the whiskey ring to prepare themselves to put up a front long before the inspectors arrived. This clearly meant that someone on the inside in Washington, with knowledge of Bristow's investigation, was involved with the whiskey ring. Using hired agents and government employees, Bristow tightened the noose when these people managed to turn up evidence incriminating whiskey distilleries in St. Louis, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Louisville. The evidence exposed damningly that these distilleries were paying taxes on a mere third of the product they produced. Next, Bristow uncovered connections between the corrupt whiskey distillers and revenue agents, men like, I don't know, John McDonald, who had been doing quite well for himself ever since bringing his talents to the whiskey ring. McDonald himself was soon exposed and ultimately imprisoned down the line for the role he played in St. Louis. With the documents Bristow and his investigators uncovered showing proof of tax evasion and government corruption taking place on a massive scale, arrests began being made. But Bristow still had yet to figure out the identity of the high-up government employee responsible for providing insider information from Washington and tipping off members of the ring to the movements and plans of his investigators. Bristow began his investigation by going after Little Fish the distillers. Using the records seized and what information he could get from them, he began making his way up the ladder to see how far the whole thing went. Eventually, he landed on the name of the man he was certain was the Whiskey Ring's inside man in Washington. The man was Orville Babcock. And while me saying that name may not land the same way as finding out who the murderer was all along in an Agatha Christie novel, I'll tell you why this name bears tremendous significance to the investigation and, of course, to President Grant himself. Orville Babcock and Grant went back, and I mean to the Civil War back. They were comrades in arms and worked closely with one another on prolonged military campaigns like the Overland Campaign. During this campaign, he served as Grant's aide-de-camp, which is essentially military ease for he served on Grant's personal staff and worked very closely with then-General Grant. And we all know how protective Grant is of his friends. Get ready for this. During his time as a mole for the Whiskey Ring in Washington, Babcock had shared correspondence regarding the activities of the ring with John McDonald, who himself had profited immensely from his connection to the ring, making somewhere around $160,000, if that number means anything to you. Though this was the amount he was alleged to have had in the days he spent in New York, likely contemplating fleeing justice. Believing there to be a letter or letters in McDonald's possession that would incriminate him should it be found, with the heat dialing up on McDonald, Babcock feared McDonald might seek to use one of these incriminating letters to blackmail him, or perhaps cut himself a better deal. So Babcock hired his lawyer, a man named Thomas C. Fletcher, to bribe McDonald to destroy the letters 
going so far as to tell his lawyer to be sure that they were destroyed in his presence. But it was too late for that. It had been established that Babcock was the mole in Washington by matching his handwriting to that of the secretive letters tipping off the whiskey ring to investigations conducted by the government. The letters even went so far as to expose Babcock's active role in shifting the government's gaze away from what was taking place in St. Louis. Grant himself said of the investigation, quote, let no guilty man escape if it can be avoided. And, as it turns out, that was a crock of shit. Because once Grant found out that the identity of one of these guilty men was none other than his close friend Orville Babcock, he did just about everything in his power to deny the allegations made against him. In spite of overwhelming evidence against him and the specter of accusations of personal involvement in the crimes of the whiskey rink, instead of severing ties with Babcock and seeking to distance himself politically from the whole affair, Grant did the opposite. Believing in Babcock's innocence, he sought to travel to St. Louis where the trial was being held to stand in defense of Babcock. When his cabinet said that that would be a bad idea, he still gave a sworn deposition from the White House professing that Babcock was innocent. Ron Chernow says it best when he writes, quote, Grant clung with a childlike devotion to complete faith in Babcock's innocence. In the final analysis, Grant's defense of Babcock, despite his clear involvement in the whiskey ring, led to Babcock being acquitted of his crimes. He even sought to resume his job working for Grant at the White House, though public outcry led to his resignation. Benjamin Bristow had effectively cut the legs out from under the whiskey ring and exposed just how high up the corruption went within the Republican Party. A History.com article writes, quote, Of the 238 individuals indicted in the whiskey ring case, 110 would be convicted and more than 3 million of the stolen tax revenues recovered. But due to the fact that he investigated people close to the president, Bristow became, quote, an outcast in the Grant cabinet. Bristow resigned as Treasury Secretary in June 1876, end quote. Once again, Grant would walk away from the scandal, an honest, though clearly gullible, and perhaps even clueless man, who had no idea of the flagrant abuses of power being committed for personal gain by those he called friends. A question I sometimes wonder about Grant as a president is, does his unassailable reputation as an honest man really matter, based on the size and scope of the scandals which took place during his presidency? And I'm admitting my bias for a second up front here. I like Grant which is why it's hard not to be frustrated by his behavior during his scandal-ridden two terms in office. And while there are certainly other scandals we could go into during Grant's years in the White House, for the purposes of this podcast, let's move on to the OG of Great Depressions, these days referred to as the Panic of 1873. Okay, so during the time period that we've been discussing, there were some enormous events occurring in America, so much so that it's easy to forget about what's going on in the rest of the world. So we're going to kind of zoom out a little bit. During the 1800s and much of the time leading up to this era, an enormous historical force was emerging and evolving, and it continues to evolve to this day, and that is free market capitalism. Prior to this era in history, many of the major economies, such as England, France, Spain, Portugal, you know, the usual suspects, were engaging in what would come to be known as mercantilism. And essentially, mercantilist economies seek to maximize their exports and minimize their imports. Basically, your country wants to sell as much to other countries as possible while buying as little as possible from other countries. The mercantilist approach to trade led a lot of these countries to a similar place. 
They would use tariffs to raise the cost of imports from elsewhere in the world so that consumers were forced to buy products at home. This might kind of sound familiar. A lot of people are saying nowadays that we live in like a neo-mercantilist era or something like that. Um, but but yeah, so this might sound familiar, but uh, it, it used to be the way things were done. But all of these countries soon found out that these policies were misguided. One of the key problems with mercantilism is that it failed to account for the fact that some countries are just better at producing certain goods than others. For example, coffee beans cannot be grown in certain climates, and in other climates, they can't be grown efficiently. Countries like Brazil, for example, have a really good climate for producing coffee. And so if you ban people from buying coffee from Brazil and force them to buy it in your home country of England, the result is that you have little or no coffee because England is just not a good place to grow coffee. And as a result, everywhere that these mercantilist policies were being enforced, goods would become more expensive. And soon enough, people began to revolt against a lot of these tariffs and all of these trade restrictions. In England, there was a really famous case of this with something that came to be known as the Anti-Corn Law League, which became a very serious political and social force, which opposed these corn laws that raised tariffs on corn to try to get people to buy English corn, essentially. And actually, I guess this is kind of a good little Jeopardy fact. The Economist, the the magazine, the British ma- magazine, was founded in reaction to these corn laws back in the 1800s at some point. The revolt eventually led to the overturning of mercantilism on a broad scale pretty much everywhere in the world, such that free market capitalism kind of became the overarching economic approach. In the end, it's going to be cheaper for consumers to buy products from other countries as they see fit, rather than trying to produce everything in-house. This is kind of a rough statement of the economic philosophy that emerged out of mercantilism, which we could call free trade or free market capitalism. And free market capitalism made a lot of countries richer than they were. Once the fetters of mercantilism were lifted, people were able to trade more freely, and a lot of countries experienced huge economic growth. And we should say, this was not just rich people getting richer, although obviously that also happened, but poor people as well seemed to benefit from freer markets. When the corn laws, which we discussed earlier, were repealed, the benefits flowed mostly to the bottom 90% of earners at the expense of the top 10%. But alongside these benefits, there was a hidden cost to free markets that got overlooked. As these markets grew, economies became more and more interconnected, which meant that if there were problems in the economy of, say, Italy, those problems would ripple out to every country that Italy traded with. And from those countries, it would ripple further until the whole global economic system came down. And this is exactly what happened in 1873, only it didn't happen in Italy. It happened in Vienna. The Austro-Hungarian economy depended significantly on exports of wheat to Great Britain, but the U.S. was in the midst of making massive investments into expanding their railroads westward, which opened up new markets for wheat in the Midwest. This development led Britain to begin purchasing American wheat more so than Austrian wheat, which put the Austrian banks in danger. The stock exchange in Vienna crashed on May 9, 1873. Then, since Germans had invested a lot of gold in the Austrian economy, Berlin's economy came down next, and things began to ripple out from there. In response, the Bank of England raised interest rates, which means other banks would be charged more for short-term loans. Banks across America and Europe depended on England for these loans, and so all of them were impacted by the rate hike. But the center of the crisis would be American rail companies. The railroads, as the innovative technology of the future, had lured a lot of investment in America, as well as elsewhere, and a lot of political support. 
But there were glaring problems with the industry. One British bank described the rail companies as, quote, wildcat enterprises, railroads through the deserts, beginning nowhere and ending nowhere. The industry had racked up enormous amounts of debt, and they largely stayed afloat by bringing in new investors. Railroad promoters would use a variety of tactics to create the illusion of security and guaranteed profit, and then they'd use those investments to pay off existing interest payments on other loans. So if you're following along carefully, you can probably see that this is starting to sound a little bit like what Bertie Madoff was doing, making payments via new investors rather than from returns on the investments themselves. But the debt was growing faster than the investments and soon enough, investors began to realize that their money was safer in England and other European markets. And when that happened, the railroad companies became unable to pay their expenses and interest payments. The railroad industry teetered on the edge, and that was bad enough, but it brought the banks down with it. Most notably, one of the larger institutions in America at the time, Jay Cook & Company. Jay Cook & Company was heavily invested in Northern Pacific, a major rail company. In what is probably one of the more disturbing aspects of this affair, Jay Cook turned to the Freedmen's Bank, which he had considerable influence over since his brother was on the board of the bank and in which Freedmen had some $50 million saved. And he used the funds in the Freedmen's Bank to buy the bad Northern Pacific bonds that he couldn't sell elsewhere. But it wasn't enough. And on September 18, 1873, Jay Cook and Company's New York branch shut its doors and all of the other branches soon followed. If you know anything about the 2008 financial crisis, the collapse of Jay Cook was a Lehman Brothers moment, meaning that when they went down, the entire economy seemed to follow. And thus began the panic. People started pulling their money out of banks across the country, and within two days, the New York Stock Exchange closed for the first time in its history. Businesses all over began to collapse, and before long, the country was in a full-blown depression that would last six years. By 1876, half of all railroad companies had failed. There aren't a lot of recorded numbers on the panic, but what we do have paints a pretty grim picture and historians argued that the picture was probably worse than it seems. By 1878, 10,500 businesses had declared bankruptcy, with roughly half of those declaring in the first couple of months of the crisis. One estimate showed that roughly one-fourth of New York City's workers were unemployed just following the crisis, and that number grew over time. One writer named Samuel Gompers recorded a story in which a man he worked with had to resort to feeding his pet dog to his family in order to survive. And keep in mind, this was a man who was employed at the time. Estimates vary as to what the national unemployment rate was, but they're all somewhere around 30%. This high unemployment led to the dissolution of families, as different family members had to travel to different places in search of work. And it also led to what became known as tramps, the wandering homeless men who traveled from place to place in search of work. The contraction lasted 65 months, which is the longest of any depression in American history. It's important to understand why this depression is a bit different from others in American history in order to understand everything that comes next in this series. Because arguably, political radicalism often emerges out of economic insecurity. This is why fascist and communist movements exploded during the Great Depression because everybody was very, very poor. But the Panic of 1873 was different in a way, not because it was more severe than the Great Depression, but because it was kind of new. 
And what I mean by that is that when I tell you that 25% of New York City workers were unemployed, that's a statistic that makes sense to you because you know what it means to be a worker who can't find a job. But put yourself in the shoes of somebody from 1873 who's in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, unemployment wasn't really a thing because work was done mostly on an individual basis or by indentured servants. The Industrial Revolution birthed a new kind of work in the wage labor system. Now, instead of working on your own farm to survive, you would be hired by someone to do another kind of work, maybe manufacturing, for example, and you'd be paid a wage for your work, which you could spend to buy your necessities. In the old system, the only people who didn't work were people that were lazy or disabled. It was unimaginable that a decent, hardworking person would be unable to find work to do because of some structural problem in the economy. That wasn't even a concept that made sense. So not only were all of these people unemployed and desperately poor, but the reasons as to why this occurred were difficult for the average person to understand. And up until this point, not working represented a severe moral or spiritual failure. With that context, try to imagine what that one in every four New York City workers must have been feeling in relation to their unemployment. Okay, so with all of that buildup, let's talk about what's kind of important for our podcast, which is the political implications. Try to imagine that you experience all of this stuff, you lost your job, and you found yourself wandering the American Midwest in search of work, separated from your family and your home. And then having experienced this modern economic nightmare, you watch all of this nonsense that we just talked about in the Grant administration. And now you get to go to the ballot box in 1874. Who are you voting for? Well, you're sure as hell not going to vote for a Republican. And this seems to have been the thought process of a solid majority of Americans. In the midterm elections, Republicans suffered a historic defeat, truly one of the worst shellackings in U.S. history. They lost 93 seats in the House and 10 in the Senate. And the Senate number would probably have been worse if more seats were up for election that year. Another important political implication follows from this, a resurgence in racism and white supremacism. The alternative to the Republicans at the time were the Democrats, who were largely a racist party. Moreover, economic insecurity often leads people to look for groups to blame, which could be Chinese immigrants and black Americans who wound up really taking a lot of the fall for the turmoil. Demagogues across the country fear-mongered about these groups seizing power and oppressing white people. And moderate Democrats also struggled to maintain power, getting flanked by racist populists from all sides. The result of all of this was a resurgence in opposition to Reconstruction in the South, and a violent one at that. The federal government would try to maintain order in the South, but it would require a Herculean effort, and it wasn't clear that the American people were willing to carry on such a fight any longer. Next time on the Almost Presidents podcast, the presidential campaigns of 1876 finally kick off. We follow the Republican and Democratic national conventions through the eyes of the eventual winners, Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. All right, and we've reached that time in the podcast. If you're a new listener, this is the part of the podcast where we talk about books that we've been reading that aren't necessarily related to the books that we take on to research the different seasons of the Almost Presence podcast, but all the same, they might be books that you're interested in reading. So, Kevin, what are you reading right now? So, this will be, I think... I think this will be a first on the podcast for both of us. It's definitely a first for me, but I don't I don't remember if you ever did this, Ryan, but I'm going to give my first negative review of a book that I read. 
And Bring it on. the book is called the book is called The Millionaire Next Door. This was recommended by a bunch of people on a personal finance subreddit that I have been frequenting as of late. And maybe I should have maybe I should have checked the back for what now in retrospect is a red flag. Um, there's a quote here on the back from Rush Limbaugh, and maybe I should have taken that one and seen that as a red flag. Big oof. But yeah, not, but not you to know, judge a book by its cover, but big oof. Yeah, and I mean it's it's and it's frustrating because it's so tough to find good books about money that aren't total scams. Like just good books about finance that give you basic advice that isn't terrible. And to be fair to this book before I kind of trash it a little bit, a lot of the advice in this book is good. It's just very, very basic. Um, the very basic, I guess I'll tell you the very basic advice that is underlies the entire book that they go through in various anecdotes, etc. It's just to not spend a lot, to live below your means, even if you make a lot of money. Even if you make a lot of money, don't splurge on cars and boats and houses, etc. Because even if you make a lot of money, if you spend all that money, you you won't be able to become wealthy. And they talk about all these people who are doctors, lawyers, who have tons and tons and tons of money, and they just spend it all. And then when it comes time to retire, they have basically nothing. So that's like the one good piece of information. Otherwise, this book is basically an exercise in failing to properly understand statistics. Basically, what they do is they take a bunch of millionaires. Um, They did a huge survey of millionaires, the two guys who wrote this book, and they just kind of tell you about millionaires and like statistically facts about them. Like, are they married? What religion are they? Like all these various facts. And they don't really seem to make much of any effort to distinguish between like correlation and causation, which is like obviously the basic thing that you want to do if you're doing anything statistical. And so a lot of this stuff like when they say like, for example, that um, most millionaires are married, well, that's that's all well and good. But are they rich because they are married or are they married because they are rich? Like what what's the like what's the causation there? And they don't even seem to try to do that. Important to note, though, is if you are married and you wind up divorcing like Bill Gates, for example, I mean, a lot of those things that you bought with your Microsoft money or whatever it may be, the house, the boat, the vacation house, the houseboat, if you're Joe Manchin, those could be gone. Those could just walk out of that courtroom with your ex-wife. So I think that might be an important thing to note, depending on how they, they rolled with it. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think there's probably arguments on both sides. I would imagine people who are married are happier on average. They're probably more stable on average. They probably make better decisions on average. But again, it's just it's kind of a basic thing of statistics of like, okay, we have to figure out what is the cause behind this and what is the effect. And they don't really seem to even be trying to do that, which I guess is fine if you're just trying to publish a study. But if you're trying to write a book that's explaining to people how they should live their lives in order to be wealthy, I don't think it's the ideal way to do that. You know, I think you want to actually make an effort of being able to say like, okay, well, this thing is a consequence of being wealthy, and this thing is what causes someone to be wealthy. But I feel like I've gone on a bit too long, but that was my thing. I was was looking for a great book on finance. Most of them suck from my understanding. Most of them are very scammy. Shout out to you, Dave Ramsey. (laughs) But but not, not this one, apparently. Sorry, everyone.
So a question for you and listeners, if you want to write in or comment on the episode on social media with your answer to this question, I'd be interested to know, did you get a certain way and a certain amount of pages, I should say, into this book and decide, I got to finish it? Or did you reach a point where you said, look, this book isn't going to be worth my time and I have the capability to just drop it? Like, Are you somebody who needs to finish the book once you reach a certain threshold of pages or will you just put it down as soon as you know it's not worth your time? So it's it's funny that you say that because I did I did read the entire book. I did at times look at the topic of the chapter and say I don't think this is going to be important for me because I'm reading this for a very practical purpose and I kind of skimmed it and didn't really read it full through for a lot of the chapters. But I am traditionally a completionist. It bothers me to put a book down before I finish it. A completionist. However, is a term for it. I love that. Yeah. Did you just yeah. make that up? Um, I don't know if I made it up. I, I thought it was a term, but I, I yeah, I don't know. Um, but I am. I do I do like to finish the book cover to cover, including introductions and epilogues, etc. But I think my goal in the new year, because I've noticed this about myself, and I think it actually it, it leads me down a road where I wind up reading or spending inordinate amounts of time on books that I don't actually like that much. I think I'm going to get better at just figuring out as soon as I realize I'm not going to like this book that much, just drop it. Even if I'm a hundred pages in 200 pages in whatever it is, just ditch it. Cause it's just, you know, you only have so many hours to read in your life and you can't waste them on junk. <laughs> but I, what's your thoughts on that? I don't know what you do with this. Yeah. Now that you coined the phrase uh, completionist, at least in the context of reading, I would say I am one as well. If I get more than 50 pages in, I got to finish it. And so that's why I've hesitated on some of the thousand page biographies that I have like Napoleon and Churchill, because I know that if I get 50 pages in, I got to finish that. I mean, I've been reading Barack Obama's, the first volume of his memoir, um, A Promised Land, for probably close to two years now, because my problem isn't only that I need to finish what I read. It's that as soon as something sounds interesting, I snatch it up and Publishing houses really got a lot of my money <laughs> this holiday season because they tend to put out a lot of good titles around this time of year. They probably would have gotten even more of my money if I still worked at Barnes and Noble, but just because I don't work, that doesn't mean I don't go there like at least twice a month. And um, so, one of the the two books that I got, just brand new, hardcover off the shelf, was the Dissident Alexei Navalny, profile of a political prisoner by David M. Hertzenhorn, and the reason I got this book was I had seen those headlines that, at least when this comes out, are relatively recent, that people have not heard from Alexei Navalny for a couple weeks. People don't know where he is. And for those of you who don't know who Alexei Navalny is, he is really Putin's only serious political opponent. And I say serious in a country where sham elections, sham trials are the norm. So not a guy that could pose a serious threat to Putin, but a guy who was able to gain a following and was able to get Putin's attention enough to have the FSB uh, attempt to assassinate him, essentially, by putting a highly toxic poison on his underwear. And he basically survived by, I don't, want, I don't want to say a miracle exactly, but the incredible efficiency of the pilots realizing that something was wrong, landing the plane immediately, the EMTs on the ground figuring out what was going on quickly. He should be dead. But 
as a consequence of returning to Russia after being poisoned. He's been run through these different sham trials and has basically wound up in prison, in penal colonies, and now we don't know. So I wanted to read a little bit about him, and I was I was cautious about it because I don't want to read a biography that hero worships this guy. He certainly has his flaws. I really don't like his views about immigration and things like that. But the idea of somebody standing up to Putin and having the chance to flee Russia and actually coming back and saying, I'm not leaving until there's a free Russia and showing up to your sham trial in a cage, more or less, and mouthing off to the judge quote, and quoting Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty as your, your favorite philosopher. There's something charming. There's something really admirable in that. And this biography seems pretty measured. So, I mean, I know Alexei Navalny's not okay, but I, I, I hope he's still alive. And uh, I've been following that headline and, you know, reading the book, I'm hoping to learn more about him. With that whole rant in mind, I'm less than 20 pages in, but still looking forward to it. Well, you're still still within the window, right? Where you can quit because you said, what was it like 50 pages and you usually have to finish them? Yeah. And I mean, look, Navalny's not quitting on Russia, so I'm not quitting on this book. This is uh, The Dissident Alexei Navalny, Profile of a Political Prisoner by David M. Hertzenhorn. So that's something that you're interested in. Definitely check it out. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I, I know I feel that when I would hear coverage of Alexei Navalny, there was a, how do I put this, like a teddy bearification of him. And I understand it to a certain extent. And I do think he's, you know, he's a good alternative to Putin. I mean, I guess he's not a real alternative anymore because, you know, he's almost, you know, he's completely, like you said, nobody even knows where he is now. He could be dead. And Putin's and, rigged the system so that he will be dictator for life. Yeah, point. exactly. Um, but he, you know, he had quite a bit of political support for a time there. And so despite, like you said, certain flaws in his views, I think also his views on Ukraine are probably, to, from what I remember hearing, not dramatically different from Putin's. He probably also has the same view that Ukraine should be annexed by Russia, just because that's kind of the nature of being a Russian citizen. I could be wrong about that, but that that's what I, I remember I here. He, I believe he's been for peace when it comes to that okay. situation. Okay. Yeah. So so maybe I'm wrong about that. And then and that makes him a really good alternative, actually, then. And that's um, also one of the reasons why they're trying to stamp him down so much, because when the war wasn't going well for Putin, and of course now the tides are kind of changing because I mean Putin knew from the beginning all he had to do was wait out the West, right? For them to lose interest or for there to be yeah. a new president and things like that, for the funding to fall apart, for the interest in helping Ukraine at all to fall apart. But when things weren't going well, I mean, anybody who raised their voice and dissented against what was going on in Ukraine, they just had to be silenced. And I mean, you read you read you read stories about people who posted something on Instagram or stood with a sign that vaguely protests the they put these people in prison and throw away the key. It's wild. So this guy, I mean, saying that Putin is going to go down in history not as one of the greats, right? Like Peter the Great. Uh, I'm trying to think, maybe Catherine something or other. Uh, just, just Russian yeah, leaders. Catherine that, the Great, I think, is yeah, yeah just, just Russian leaders that are absolutely uh, iconic, right? He's going to go down as the poisoner of underpants. Like saying that 
in a country where somebody who posts on Instagram saying, hey, we shouldn't fight in Ukraine, gets locked up, and you're calling Putin an underwear poisoner? <laughs> I mean, he's telling the truth, but like, man. Yeah, that's that's a ballsy statement right it there. It takes stones. And I respect that a lot, yeah. Yeah. And he's probably right. I don't know how it will go down in Russia, but certainly I think that's probably the, the memory of Putin will be of a tyrant and a warmonger rather than a uh, than a hero and a you know a great leader. Yeah, and so for what it's worth, I know sometimes we get a little bit critical of the country on this podcast, you know, whether it's political parties or certain individuals, um, some some of whom are orange. But I mean, in America, we have the freedom to to criticize that, and and that really means something, and. That also means that it's something that we need to make sure that we're preserving, make sure that we're guarding against anything that would would threaten that. So it does kind of make you look at your own country as well and uh, just see how different it is from Russia, which is really not a good place to live right now. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Well, all right, folks. So those are our book recommendations for the month of January. Hope you all have a great month. You will hear from us on Thursday with our weekly show. And as always, thanks for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed the podcast. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us. Leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show, and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old-fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well if you're a Facebook person. Just type The Almost Presidents Podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is the Almost Presidents Podcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.